I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, July 12th, 2011. Coming up, the dangers of ocean acidification. And how you can find a new world to be visited by a spacecraft. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. For years, medical researchers have tried to create cells of specific tissues in the human body. You've probably heard of embryonic stem cells, which, as the name suggests, are derived from an early-stage embryo and haven't yet specified into a particular cell type. And you may have heard of adult pluripotent stem cells, which have been artificially returned to that embryonic state. But a new technique invented by researchers at the University of Pennsylvania, can turn one kind of adult cell into another without using stem cells at all. In this case, scientists turned a brain cell and a skin cell into a heart cell. Heart cells are one of the most sought-after types of cells in regenerative medicine. That's because researchers expect that they may help to repair injured hearts by replacing lost tissue. Reprogrammed heart cells could be used to test new drugs, among other things. The researchers used messenger RNA, the signal molecules that tell a cell which genes to express. The process is like nuclear transfer, which involves swapping a cell's entire genetic code. But RNA transfer isn't a whole cell replacement of the genome. It's more like reprogramming. The researchers first extracted messenger RNA from normal heart cells and injected it into one of the target cells. The heart cell RNA flooded the cell with instructions to create heart-specific proteins. Then... These proteins encourage further changes in gene expression. Eventually, that original brain or skin cell was converted entirely into a normal, fully functioning heart cell. The research was published last week in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. As much of the nation sweltered this past July 4th, a good turnout of skiers and snowboarders, some in swimsuits and festive costumes, were busy carving tracks at the Rapahoe Basin Ski Area. Thanks to a snowpack of nearly epic proportions in much of the Colorado Rockies this spring and early summer, Arapahoe Basin got to stay open on July 4th for the first time since 1997. Even more important, snow melt is now helping to fill reservoirs in the Colorado River Basin, serving nearly 35 million people in seven states, including residents of Denver and Boulder. Those reservoirs, including the mighty Lakes Powell and Mead, have been depleted by 11 years of drought, and growing demand in the long run actually exceeds the supply of water in the basin. Thanks to rivers flush with runoff, Lake Mead has come up to about about 20 feet after having flirted with low record level back in November. Now a news report from the Pacific Institute here in Boulder offers some additional good news. Between 1990 and 2008, municipal users of Colorado River Basin water have used about 1% less per capita 
each year, but with an increase of 10 million people to the area. And some areas, including Denver and Southern California, actually used less water overall. But it's no time to start cheering. Another new report, this one from the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation, finds that climate change will most likely reduce the overall supply of water in the basin. It will also lead to more frequent and longer-lasting droughts. Carly Jirla, a water resource manager at the University of Colorado Boulder, oversaw that report. One of the nation's top water natural resources and India law experts, David Getches, died last week. Getches had served as the dean of the University of Colorado's law school since 2003. He stepped down just days before he died last Tuesday of pancreatic cancer. He'd planned to return to teaching at the law school. In the 1980s, Getches was executive director of the Colorado Department of Natural Resources under Governor Dick Lamb. He published several books on water law. Charles Wilkinson, a professor of law at CU and a longtime friend of Getches, said, quote, David brought vision, common sense, and passion to pressing issues of water, land, and Indian rights. Now Indian tribes, universities, government offices, conservationists, and the rivers themselves will grieve aloud. We will not see this kind again. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show. I'm Susan Moran. So many problems plague the oceans and the fish and other species that inhabit them. Overfishing, population, and much more. Perhaps the greatest threat to sea life, as well as humans, is ocean acidification. If you've been scuba diving just about anywhere recently, you've probably experienced some form of coral bleaching, one manifestation of ocean acidification. The head of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, Jane Lubchenco, recently said that the ocean is becoming more acidic at rates not seen for at least 20 million years. And that's due mostly to increases in CO2 in the atmosphere. NOAA recently created an ocean acidification program to address the grave threat. In May, Dr. Libby Jewett was appointed the first director of the program. She's on the phone now from Washington, D.C. to share with us, with us what she aims to do about the problem. Dr. Jewett? Welcome to How on Earth. Thank you, Susan. Glad to be here. Why don't we start with um, you giving us a nutshell of the chemistry of ocean acidification. Well, as you pointed out, uh, we have seen an unprecedented increase in the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And uh, one of the um, beneficial purposes of the ocean has been that it uh, over time, it has absorbed a good, a significant amount of the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So it sort of acts as a, a scrubber in a way of, right. the, of the atmosphere. And this is due to the, the interface between the ocean and, um, and the air in the atmosphere. And so as the ocean um, takes up the carbon dioxide, um, it actually uh, causes uh, a decrease in pH of the water, and this is because the ocean absorbs the carbon dioxide and goes through, uh, and I won't go into the chemical equation, but basically causes a, an increase in the amount of hydrogen ions in, in the water. And so what we're seeing as a result now, and for a long time it was thought that the, the ocean had this limitless ability to 
both absorb carbon dioxide and buffer it. Um, so so this, we wouldn't so this see big, any... This big sorry. carbon sink it was meant to be. Exactly, exactly. But now through the diligent work of um, many, many scientists from around the world and, and many actually in NOAA, um, we have documented the beginnings of a decrease in the pH of the ocean, which could have catastrophic consequences. And I mentioned in the um, introductions some of them, some of the effects, such as um, coral bleaching. But what are some of the, you know, most known effects? Some of the casualties. So, so coral bleaching is actually uh, more a direct effect of the increase in temperature. Um, but the but. One of the uh, possible consequences is as you see a decrease in pH, which is an increase in the acidity of the water, um, organisms in the water that have shells, and corals being one of the predominant ones, um, are at risk of those shells actually dissolving. And that's what's particularly scary. And, And many organisms, corals, many things that live in coral reefs in addition to corals, um, oysters, mussels, and even tiny phytoplankton. Some of uh, the predominant phytoplankton in the oceans have little shells around them. And so um, it, when they come into contact with water with a, with a reduced pH, we may see the dissolution of those shells. And I've read some studies that show um, not just the tiny critters, but some of the larger ones. Some of the animals are actually changing their behavior in addition to sort of losing their exoskeletons. And there was one study that showed, uh, what's the Nemo fish, the orange clownfish, uh-huh. the uh, beloved protagonist there, um, when it was put in this condition with raised or uh, heightened CO2 conditions, they ignored the alarming sounds of a daytime reef that was teeming itself with predators so that they're, they're not reading the cues they should be. Right. So, I mean, there, there's actually a whole array of possible consequences and um, behavioral changes is one and that's we're really at the very beginnings of of trying to understand you know the whole gamut and so um, the the sort of goal of the the research that's being done is to look you know look at behavior look at the effect on larvae um, because pH is a it's a sort of fundamental Con- fundamental construct of the ocean, and it has to has remained the same for you know hundreds of thousands of years, and now we're seeing an in, uh, a decrease in that pH. What are some and, of the and the ramifications? Sorry, no, go ahead. And so you know, organisms, particularly tiny ones that have that are pretty much in direct contact with ocean water, are probably going to have to put more energy into um, various aspects of their life that they didn't have to before in order to maintain that pH. Now, I just want to throw out one um, example. Human blood pH, which we all know about and is something that's tested when we go in for a blood test, has to remain within um, a very, very small window, uh, 7.38 and 7.42. And if it goes outside of that, um, you begin to experience problems and acidosis if it goes low. And so these organisms that are, are adapted to live in a particular pH are now going to be encountering a pH that's different from that. And, you know, it, it can cause changes in, their, in many aspects of their life history. And so behavior is, just, is, is one. I mean, reproduction and, um, and their ability to protect themselves from predators in terms of their shell 
Um, hearing, it, you know, we're seeing that uh, there's a possibility that marine mammals um, may be hearing either different things or, you know, things will be louder than they were before because of the way sound is transmitted. So there, there's so many things that we don't understand that we need to understand in order to be ready. And is it safe to say that ocean acidification is reversible? I mean, when you've got the basic reactions showing CO2 is dissolved and bicarbonate is formed, and that's pretty straightforward and reversible, but it seems relatively easy to see how if we reduce CO2 emissions, you could turn things around. Is that the case? That is true, but it's going to take, it's going to take a long time. Um, even if we um, could hold steady, I mean, right now we have uh, you know, the, the sort of background pre-industrial levels of carbon dioxide, we've had an increase of 100 parts per million, and that's just a description of the sort of level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere over those pre-industrial levels. And if we say we could hold steady, you know, at let, let's say 450, it's still going to be probably 10,000 years before, um, you know, the the buffering system of the ocean would be able to counteract what's already happened. So it's, it's, it, it, the problem is the rate is happening so fast um, that, you know, we have to do a lot to, in order to, um, to keep it steady. And then even then, we're beginning to see effects now. So whether we can get back to those, the, the effect level from, you know, sort of pre-industrial levels is unclear. So it doesn't look um, like Congress is in any rush to um, pass any kind of climate bill, but getting to the heart of the matter. So in your seat, sounds like you got your work cut out for you. I mean, do you, and, and does NOAA, do you think you will come out recommending any kind of policy to limit CO2 emissions? Well, that isn't the intent of our program. I mean, the NOAA Ocean Acidification Program is very much focused on um, research in terms of understanding what is actually happening in the oceans and then understanding the impacts. Um, in terms of what cl Congress can achieve on the climate level, that will, that is definitely the big remediation for this, for the problem of ocean acidification. But it's not something that, that this particular program is working on. Although the information that we can generate and say, you know, he, according to our models, if we continue on this trajectory, um, we will see these kinds of impacts, you know, complete crashes of large commercial fisheries. You know, many, many people rely on those for their livelihood. That information, I think, will be incredibly helpful as Congress moves forward. And, you know, to say, look, this is the cause and effect. If we don't make a change, this is what we may be facing in the future. So what can we expect um, of the program? And what do you hope to, to do with it? Well, we're very uh, relatively new. I've only been in the position for a little over a month. And uh, this position was actually uh, mandated by the 4M legislation, which was passed by Congress. So there is an intent there to, um, you know, put resources towards uh, this topic. And, uh, you know, although our budget is small, we hope that it will grow. And the, the, um, the, Focus now, really, primarily, and this is Noah's forte, is one uh, uh, putting, uh, sort of leading the effort on global observations, but also observations in U.S. waters. So that's actually, you know, systems, all sorts of observing systems, buoys and gliders and other things to 
to actually monitor pH in open ocean and in coastal systems. Thanks very and, much. I'm, I'm going to have to okay. cut us off because okay. we've got to complete, but thank you so much. That was Dr. Libby Jewett, the okay. new and the first director of NOAA's Ocean Acidification Program. We hope you'll join us again. Thank you. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show. I'm Joel Parker. Some sciences have a tradition of very fruitful interactions between professional researchers and amateurs. And this has been made even more accessible with data being able to be shared over the Internet across the world. Dr. Pamela Gay, an astronomer at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville, is the architect and participant in many such collaborations. In addition to her uh, teaching and research, she does extensive public outreach to share the excitement of astronomy and even finds ways to let people with an internet connection make new scientific discoveries and find new worlds that will be visited by spacecraft. Now, as you know, I, I'm an astronomer and I've had the opportunity to work with Pamela on the New Horizons mission to Pluto. So I had a chance to talk to her about the Zooniverse and about hunting icy objects in the outer solar system. Uh, we begin with Pamela describing her show, Astronomy Cast. It's a podcast, a, an audio show that goes out through iTunes and through our website, astronomycast.com. It's a show where my co-host Fraser Kane and I work to take our listeners on a facts-based journey of the universe, teaching them not just what we know, but how we know the things we know about the universe we all share. So what was your motivation going from being, a, being an astronomer to doing podcasts? It, it all started as a way to get people to stop looking at their shoes and asking me, what isn't an astronomer when, <laughs> when I, I told them what I do for a living? It's always surprising how many people just don't really know what the science of astronomy is all about. And so we're trying to get out the word in an accessible manner that anyone can listen and learn and feel that they're getting something out of every episode. Astronomy has the privilege of being a very populist science in some ways. Everyone can look up and wonder, where does it come from? At, at age five, we, we all were fascinated with two things, outer space and dinosaurs. And <laughs> astronomy has a whole lot to offer. And even in the brightest of cities, you can go out and still see the moon and still ask, why does it have phases? Why do we have tides? There's always something to discover. So you're a professional astronomer. Tell us again, what are some of the topics that you work on? Lately, I've been studying what is it that motivates the public to get engaged in doing astronomy research, helping us out in citizen science projects. My background is in studying variable stars, stars that change in brightness from moment to moment, and studying how galaxies evolve differently in a variety of different environments. So you just used the term citizen science. What is that? It's... The tradition, it's a hundred-year-old tradition for organizations like the American Association of Variable Star Observers of inviting the public to help professional astronomers 
accomplish tasks that we can't do on our own. There are individual stars that need to be monitored every night to see if they are going to go into an outburst. Different projects that there's just so many images that need viewed that we reach out to the public and we say, can you help us look at galaxies and tell us the shapes of the galaxies that you're looking at via websites. I'm currently working on a project called Ice Hunters that invites the public to help discover the future destination of the New Horizons spacecraft. What would that destination be exactly? Well, it's, it's going to be some sort of a large icy object called a Kuiper Belt object. These are blocks of ice that range from roughly a kilometer in size out to things, well, the size of our Earth's moon or a little bit larger. And we're not quite sure what we're going to discover yet. That's where the public comes in. But we're looking for one of these blobs of ice that happens to have just the right orbit to carry it into the path of the New Horizons spacecraft. So someone out there may actually find an object that the New Horizons spacecraft will visit. Yes, that's that's the most amazing thing about this project. Just someone anywhere sitting on their computer could actually be the discoverer of this. Yes. And we've we've written software that allows everyday people to look at images from some of the largest telescopes in the world. And these are very ugly, very special images. What we've done is taken your normal, beautiful astronomical images with stars and galaxies and lined up two images taken at different times of the same field and subtracted them to try and subtract off all the stars, subtract off all the galaxies, subtract off, well, everything that's beautiful. So what should be left behind are the moving objects, the asteroids, the Kuiper Belt objects. And in these ugly images is the object or objects that New Horizons will go to in the future. So how involved is it for some Joan or Joe user who logs in and wants to do this? I mean, how difficult is it? It's very, very simple. You go to the site, you have to register with Zooniverse.org, which is our parent organization that runs a variety of citizen science projects. And, you know, registering and remembering how to spell your email address is probably the hardest part. <laughs> Once you've done that, you're presented with one of these fabulously ugly images. And what you have to do is just look for the solid white blob of light in a field of donut-shaped residuals of stars and look for the occasional dashed streak of an asteroid moving through the field. There are, I guess, a few other of these type of citizen science astronomy things as well and called the Zooniverse. Is that what it is? We're, we're the ninth Zooniverse citizen science project. Other projects that have been produced include Galaxy Zoo, which was our original project. And it invited the public to look at first at galaxy images from the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, which is a ground-based project to map the nearby universe. And now we've moved on to asking the public to look at images from the Hubble Space Telescope and help us understand things just a little bit further away. We have projects to map craters on the moon, to look for star-forming bubbles out in the Milky Way, to even help us discover planets using data from the Kepler mission. And now we have people out there looking at ice. Well, thank you very much for talking with us, Pamela. We look forward to maybe hearing from you again later when the results are in. Sounds great, Joel. It's a pleasure being on your show. That was astronomer Dr. Pamela Gay. You can sign up at 
icehunters.org to help astronomers discover the world that the New Horizons spacecraft will visit after it flies by Pluto, or get involved with other citizen science projects at zooniverse.org. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show producer was Joel Parker, was engineered by Tom McKinnon, and additional contributions by Ted Burnham and Tom Yulesman. Tim Morton wrote our theme music. Tom Wassinger produced it. Additional music from Norman Engelitner and Opafire. And we're still accepting entries for our theme song, but only until July 26. It's a two-week deadline extension to give you musicians a bit more time to work on your tunes. For more information, it's on our website at howonearthradio.org slash contest. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org. Podcasts of our show are available and through iTunes. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Joel Parker.